Coming up, we've got a special guest in studio, sort of. I'll tell you who that is coming up in just a couple minutes. Uh, the travel ban is blocked again. Is populism dead? I'll tell you more about that. We've got a special guest, Tom Nichols, talking about his book, The Death of Expertise, and how Rachel Maddow got it so wrong. That coming up on The Thomas Guide. This is The Thomas Guide, your roadmap for navigating the world. With your guide, John Thomas political savant, world-class analyst, and culture critic. No need to Google directions. Just buckle up and enjoy the ride. This is The Thomas Guide with your host, John Thomas. Welcome back to The Thomas Guide. So we've got a different show for you today. Uh, We've got a special guest in studio who already is a cynic. I can see that. As the intro was playing, our guest was giving me the look and going, Uh, you may know him. He's an up-and-coming star on this little station called KFI. His name's Bill Handel. Bill, uh, welcome to the show. Oh, wait, you're not hot. Oh, here we go. Microphone. Oh, we've got you now. Yeah, you pay this guy? (laughs) Clearly too much. (laughs) Clearly too much. Uh, Hello. You know, I was watching your intro, uh, and I... It, was it political savant or idiot savant? Uh, just depends on the day. It depends on who's... <laughs> anyway, lots of fun being here. I have not yet seen you do this show live, even though we talk a lot every week yes. here on uh, my show right. as our political strategist. So I, this is... You're off to a bad start. Well, <laughs> as, the, as the intro says, buckle up. Okay. Get ready for the ride. Yep. So uh, Handel's here today uh, on his own free will, and he is directing the show, which means... He's going to interrupt us. So, uh, constantly. So, engineer. A lot. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> engineer Roy, uh, producer Jenny, I'm sorry. And I'm sorry to the audience, but I'm sure it'll make for an entertaining show. Um, we're also going to do something a little different today. Usually, I go through the news and then comment. We're going to have producer Jenny Lee go through the news and I will comment. But before we get into that news, something that just broke before the show was uh, Trump unveiled his budget plan. Uh, and it's already being torn apart, even by Republicans. And some of the highlights of it are, is that he is chopping all funding for PBS, NPR, the National Endowment for Arts. He's gutting the EPA. He's reducing uh, the the Energy Department's budget. Uh, it's, it's kind of, it's just hacking through, of course, doing what he said. Uh, and he's he's upping military spending, and people are already up in arms. And even Marco Rubio had said this morning, he said, uh, the president needs to learn that we we actually approve the budget and write the budget. And he has the power of the veto, not the other way around. So it'd be fascinating to see how that all shakes up. Um, it's pretty bold. I don't think I've ever seen a budget this dr- drastically cutting things like PBS. NPR. I guess that's good for your business, isn't it, Bill? Uh, it's always good for the business. You know, I just, uh, as you were speaking, it just occurred to me that this budget may be the very best reason for a line item veto to be involved with a federal budget. California, the governor has yep. a line item veto, 
And I'll bet you people are screaming now for a line item veto with the president because it's going to be a, a yes or a no. That's true. And how? And it's how? It's too do, complicated. And how do? How does Congress yeah. and uh, the president agree on this one? They they're not going to. Um, I mean, you've got half of Congress with little kids that watch Sesame Street. Now, what do they do? Well, I wonder. First of all, your wire's caught on the mic. Oh, okay. So I don't know. It's it's like, yeah. Oh, gee. Oh. <laughs> Oh, great. Got it. <laughs> That's funny. Um, well, I mean, the libertarian and the Republican in me actually applauds this. Why is the government making Sesame Street? You've got YouTube. You've got Disney Star. What? I get it maybe 20 years ago, but now? But it is got Big Bird's controversial. So we'll see how that all plays out. I think the line item makes sense. Um... You know, I don't think we're going to be talking about it much today, but but healthcare is a major thing, and it is make or break for the president if he cannot get his healthcare bill approved in whatever shape it looks like, and if it's not liked, he is so screwed in the midterms because healthcare is one of those topics that affects every American, whether or not they have it. It's something they might want, and it's something they care about. Uh, and right now, the plan is not liked by anyone not liked by Republicans. It's not liked by insurance companies, healthcare providers. Um, and it, the, the main problem with it is I see it is it doesn't address really what people disliked about Obamacare. They didn't like Obamacare because it didn't provide you choices uh, uh, of health insurance companies. So you can't buy across state lines with this because the way they need to get it approved uh, with uh, shit, is it reconciliation? That's that's the way they're going to pull it out. You can only do about 70% of what the Republicans want to do with reconciliation. And part of that is you can't change the plan, the program, so that you can buy across state lines. So that, if you can't provide that, that's going to set up a lot of people. So they don't have more options under this plan. The other thing is uh, people didn't like Obamacare because they couldn't keep their doctor. Um, well, this doesn't really address that much. Um, and then the other thing they didn't like is that their prices went up under Obamacare. Well, because you're reducing, because you're not uh, penalizing people for not getting insurance, the pool of people who buy into insurance in general is going to shrink, which is going to jack up the cost for those of the people who do choose to get insurance, while young people are going to just opt out not to get it because they figure they're healthy. So it doesn't address the cost issue. So it's a real problem. Um, and... Trump's trying to ram it through. I just watched a CNN town hall last night with Health Secretary Tom Price, and he said the problem with the CBO's analysis of, of the health care plan was that they only analyzed, or I like to say analyzed, they only analyzed. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Mary Carey, when she was no here, would have liked that. Yeah. <laughs> we did talk about double anal, so you got to <laughs> analyze everything. Um, <laughs> in fact, I think I'm an analyst. For you, Bill. That's excellent. On KFI. Yes. Yeah. KFI's analyst. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I suppose. The <laughs> um, uh, Tom Price was saying that the CBO only analyzed one third of the whole plan. And so if they didn't look at the other two thirds, they didn't understand the actual implications of the plan. I don't know if I buy that. Either way, it's a hot potato. They better get it right or they are totally screwed. All right. Let's get into the news. Jenny Lee. Yeah. Before we start the news. Um 
guys, just make sure you ask us any questions. We're on Facebook Live. Mm. I'm looking at your question. One chat that uh, we've got going on yeah. is, is Bill related to George Frederick Handel? Uh, yes. Who the hell is George Frederick One Handel? One of the greatest musicians. <laughs> and by the way, Jenny, I am not. But it sounds good. I couldn't carry a tune in a dump truck. That's a question for <laughs> George, John look up, Sam Evans. Yeah, okay. look at uh, look George Frederick Handel, uh, the Messiah, uh, Handel's Messiah. Just you can look. Our, you can Google. That. All right, he's not, quite he's quite a big deal. But you, you know who he is? H- Handel. The Handel. Yeah, George Frederick. As a matter um, of fact, the Messiah. One of the best composers of all time. And oh. and the Messiah, <laughs> Jenny. Did you know that it uh, premiered in London? I didn't know. It premiered, yes, no. it premiered in London. Well, there you go. Double jeopardy. Well, he was born in Germany, but then yeah. moved to London. Yeah. So you know, I our, think he our, died in England. You know, our so. guest, uh, speaking of Jeopardy, our guest coming up, Tom Nichols, is the all-time best winner of Jeopardy ever. He's won it five times in a row. I feel like he should come on your show and you should you should grill him. Because you're pretty good at trivia. Not like trivia. that. Not like that. No. That's, uh, no. Um, yeah, please do ask us questions. Thank you for the question. And especially if you have insults for Bill Handel, we yeah. will le- read them live on the air. Now, am I allowed to uh, re- return the insult? Of course. Because this is and the by, internet. By the way, we can cuss. Oh, okay. Fuck That's shit right. ass anal. We can say it. Wow. But I just no said double it. anal. No, nah, double rule. anal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we went there. That's my rule. We're not, it was a tight fit. Just. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's oh, get dear. back to the news. The news. This is, yeah. Okay, so the big story today is that Trump's travel ban, which was meant to go into effect Thursday at midnight, this is the second travel ban, has now been blocked, this time by a Hawaiian judge. Um, The first time it was blocked by a Washington judge. Um, And this Hawaiian judge named Watson um, banned it on a basis of religious discrimination. There okay. There, well, I mean, first of all, I'm not. I'm, I mean, I'm not surprised uh, that Hawaii, out of all places, Barack Obama's hometown, one of the most liberal states in the country, came up with this block. Um, I mean, I think it is a fair argument to say that it basically is the same thing. I mean, it's the same intent. Uh, Trump's got problems here. He's got to get it past the judicial branch, and uh, and if he keeps, here's the thing. It's a political win for Trump's base, even with the blocks, because at least Trump is going through the motions, doing what he said he would do on immigration. But at the end of the day, he has to get something done. And so if they keep getting stopped, um, it's problematic. I, I wonder I wonder if there's anything that he can get through in this environment without having a court stop it. I'm just not I'm just not sure. Um, didn't Trump mock it on the air? Do we have a video clip? Moments ago, I learned that a district judge in Hawaii part of the much overturned Ninth Circuit Court and I have to be nice, otherwise I'll get criticized for for speaking poorly about our courts. I'll be, I'll be criticized by these people among the most dishonest people in the world. I will be criticized. I wish, uh, I wish he said so-called judge. I just <laughs> wish. But what was fascinating in that is it really speaks to my point about Trump's base. The people at that rally are his base. Did you hear them? 
going apoplectic when he mentions judges, those people, talking about the media, the press corps in the back. His base knows exactly what's going on. And so to some degree, even though he hasn't been able to get done what he promised he'd get done, this is red meat because his base knows he's fighting the good fight and he's he's uh, not in a passive way either. I mean, he's, he's unafraid to call him out. Uh, and so that's good for his base. But long term, uh, he needs to be able to get his policies through. Let's go to the next topic. The next topic. So we're moving globally now. And um, By the way, I like it when you read the news. You just sound so smart with that accent. Oh, goodness. It's really... You don't know how many people say that Well, to it's true. It's true. I could yeah. be the dumbest person on the planet. I and still and, think and, I was intelligent. And, and you're close to that, Jenny, because <laughs> yeah, I know well, we've thanks. lived together for a thanks. long time. Well, and, and for those of you, you know, you can't see behind the scenes. She has good teeth. That's for an me. accent and good teeth. Should I tell you a little secret? Yeah. I have my teeth done in New York. Uh, <laughs> so recently? Yeah, last year. Oh, I had really? my oh, so, so she used to live in London. Uh, then she moved to New York. Were they just like, like they that? They weren't that bad. Oh. <laughs> well, what? what um, but I've got the American smile now. You, you That's actually what my smile. British um, dentist said when I went back. He said, You're the envy. Yeah. You're the cat's meow. <laughs> okay, sorry, go ahead. Okay, so. Moving globally, this was um, an election that took place in the Netherlands last night. Um, the incumbent, Mark Rutte, won, and he was up against um, far-right party Wilders, um, who was criticized for being anti-immigration. This is a whole wave of kind of very far-right um, nationalism that's sweeping over Europe. You've got Marie Le Pen in France, and obviously people are comparing it to the movement of Brexit, but um, the liberalist won in a famously um, left-wing country and he said, um, the incumbent said, this is the wrong type of populism and that's why he won last night's hmm. election. So I normally don't really give a shit about these kinds of elections. I mean, I'm just being honest, but I do think it's, I'm glad you went into this news topic for two reasons. I wish we had a picture. Damn, I forgot. Maybe we'll post it on our Facebook uh, the one of the guys I can't remember his the the candidates' names look like an actual Oompa Loompa. I mean, like a real with the blonde wig or somebody from the Hunger Games. Um, That's Wilders. Yeah, yeah. Wild. or Wilders. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I, he, it was like all I could see was like Oompa. I mean, yeah. the whole time it was strange. Um, but the, beyond that, the reason we're covering this is a lot of people are saying that populism is sweeping the world. You know, it. Uh, remember Donald Trump said, call me Mr. Brexit before his election. Then that's why he was going to win. It's because populism is going everywhere. Uh, this was a major blow to populism. And so the question people are should be asking is, is populism a flash in the pan? Is it something that uh, that will continue elsewhere? Is this, an, is this a, an anomaly? I would argue this was an anomaly because... Populism rises when voters are frustrated at, like, at, at all-time highs. That's when kind of populist uh, people are able to lock onto that. That's why Donald Trump won, is he was a populist, no doubt about is a populist. Uh, and he tapped into the anger and frustration of voters wanting change, any change. And he didn't even have to give real, like, measured solutions. All he had to say was, I'm going to kill TPP because people felt they were getting screwed on trade. Um, 
I think we're going to see this populist trend continue. But just because populism is in vogue, you still have to have good candidates. And if you run Oompa Loompas, uh, it's not going to work. So that's my two cents on that. Yeah, well, I actually personally voted for Brexit. But you did. I did. Um, but it actually wasn't based on any kind of popularism ideals. Mm. It was more to do with the, you know, other other situations such as y- the European regulatory system for all trade. There were, right. It wasn't actually based on kind of anti-immigration and all of that jazz. Mm. So, you know. Well, uh, I, I assume, I mean, you probably saw it with the world leaders coming and saying, don't vote for Brexit, right? I mean, yeah. did that... Did that weigh on you at all? I mean, did it you? It did. I mean, the biggest reason I wanted to stay in the European Union is because I knew initially that there would be such a tremendous financial upheaval. Um, but I definitely was looking towards more long-term benefits of being out of the European Union. I don't think personally it will last. And I think if we get out, we're going to protect ourselves to a certain extent. So yes, it was bad for the markets, but I was prepared to take mm-hmm. a short-term crunch rather than, you know, How much of Brexit do you think uh, was based, was immigration in that conversation? Sadly, I think great, a huge part of it. Yeah. Yeah. London was. Immigration pertaining to Muslims? Yes. Okay. Having said that, London, which is the most multicultural part of England, was all for staying within the European Union. Which is not surprising. I mean, you see in the United States, you look at the big city centers Mm -hmm. and whoop, shocker. Uh, there for sanctuary cities. You know, they're, they're, it's it's not dissimilar. Yeah, but the moment you say, oh, I voted for Brexit, people immediately condemn you saying you're racist, this, that, and the other. But, it, you know, it wasn't about that. It was about all the power being in Europe and away from our parliament, which was, for mm-hmm. me, the most important thing is that our our parliament retains the say on our policies. You know, uh, we're going to have Tom Nichols, our guest, in a few minutes come on, and we're going to talk about the death of expertise in his latest book. But I think it really, uh, Brexit and populism does speak to that frustration where, and I, I don't know, I'm a victim of it, even domestically. When things are so bad, when a guy like Donald Trump comes along, I think to myself, well, he's not perfect by any stretch, but how could we be doing any worse? How could, and I think Brexit is in the same way. How We've got to do something to disrupt the system. This may not be the, the silver bullet to solve it all, but we've got to do something. Uh, and, and and populism can can reg- register with that. All right, let's let's keep rolling through this. So Bill, hold on one second, Bill. You've been so quiet. Yeah. I've never <laughs> heard you. you know, I've known you now for a while. I've never heard you be this silent. Uh, actually, I have to tell you, uh, it, it's this is fairly impressive, John, for oh, wow. uh, someone who has not done a whole lot of this sort of thing. I know you've yeah. been on television a million years, yeah. but uh, I noticed that you're actually looking at the camera. And pretending you're looking at people. It's mostly because uh, I don't uh, want to uh, look at your face. I know <laughs> that. I know that. No, but in, much prettier. Lens. No, but in general, I have to tell you, uh, your Jenny is wonderful here. As, I think she's adding a lot to the show. This is the first yeah, time we've done this. Yeah, you know, huge, huge amount where you can. It's easier to react, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you're doing a, ne- a news item. Even uh, when I do uh, the show, for example, uh, on KFI, there's always a news person right. there, uh, and it's hard to do it all by yourself, both the news and reaction. But I got to do it right now. Um, I'm giving you uh, four and a half bagels out of five. I was going to say out of ten? <laughs> no. 
Now, on the these, bagels, on the bagel Jew, scale. These are Jew bagels? Real Jew bagels. Oh, wow. not, a, not the stuff in the supermarket that they say are bagels. It's just bread. All, <laughs> all the credit goes to our engineer and our producer. I just sit here and smile, but everything's done. Great, great. All right, Jenny Lee, continue on. Tax. Let's talk about Trump's tax return. Um, this is going to be an interesting to get your take on this one. Um, firstly, whether you think he leaked his yeah. own tax return. People are saying they're not sure of the source. It's definitely not coming from the IRS. And secondly, um, Maddo, on her take on Trump's 2005 tax return, what she said is that um, it's an exemplary tax return. Why? Because this was the year that Melania Trump was applying to be a citizen. She didn't have citizenship at that point. So she needed to use this 2005 tax return as evidence. And that's why it's kind of an atypical sterling yeah. was actually here's her word. I, here's what I don't understand about that argument. What the hell? Trump, what does his tax rate have to do with citizenship? Of course, he needs to show that he has paid taxes. But would it matter to the government whether he's at a 25% rate or a 13% rate? You know what I mean? It, if I were Trump, I'd be like, yeah, just make sure we paid the taxes and did it right. But I would still be looking to minimize my tax obligation. But he, anyway, it, uh, I don't really buy that. He, I think there's a lot of interesting things. But I was on CNN the night it broke, and I had this to say, and I'll tell you my mind a little. If you take a closer look at the documents which Rachel Maddow held up, uh, <laughs> and there is a stamp on one of the pages, and if you take a close look at that stamp right there, it actually reads client copy. Uh, and, and so, you know, John, to you, th this is raising you know, a lot of speculation, a lot of conspiracy theory, sorry, Dylan, that, you know, these documents were actually leaked, if not by the president himself, someone working, by Russia? But maybe by Vladimir Putin, <laughs> right. as a, you know, no, but maybe by someone who's working with uh, Donald Trump, because this is a fabulous diversion, sure. and it gives him a lot of breathing space right now, because he was really under the gun. I would, if I were a betting man, I would give it a 90% odds that the leak did come from the Trump organization. It makes perfect sense. And the Trump organization is brilliant when it comes to public relations and moving the conversation. Mm. We saw them do that time and time again in the campaign cycle. I don't see why it's any different here. So that's what I had to say an hour after the story broke, but I've slightly modified my opinion. I still think they leaked the documents in an effort to buy themselves 24 hours of time as they're trying to sort out this healthcare mess. So I think this might have been Trump's nuclear option. But then I was reflecting back on it further and I was thinking, why did, if he had these, and he thought they were great, why didn't he release it on the campaign trail when he needed to shift the conversation away from the Access Hollywood tapes or other things? In a campaign, you never leave a stone unturned unless it's a cakewalk and you know you don't need to do it. You're safe, you're running unopposed, you're, you're, you're a lock for re-elect or elect. Trump knew, I don't care what his team says, he knew it was a fight. I don't think he even thought he was going to win. So why didn't they pull out all the stops and release it then? I'll tell you why I don't think they released it then. Number one, he didn't want to reignite the conversation about his tax returns because Rachel Maddow's probably right. 2005 was probably his best year where he paid the most taxes. Um, and that would then open up the dialogue in the home stretch of, okay, what about 2006, 2007, 2008, et cetera, et cetera of which he doesn't want to release. The other is, I think, just more superficial. 
Trump's 2005 return showed that that year he made $150 million in income. Okay. He sold two large buildings that year. It was one of his more profitable years. Every other year, he probably makes far less than $150 million a year. I think Trump's brand is that he wants you to not know how much he makes. He wants you to lump him in with the Bill Gates, the Mark Zuckerbergs, you know, the rich, rich, rich billionaires that he could be making a billion a year. And I think to Trump, only making 50 million, 100 million a year belittles his brand. So I don't think, I think that's why he didn't release it. And perhaps that's why he didn't release it this time. Here's the other thing. I was having lunch with my opposition researcher. He's the guy that does anything and everything to find dirt on our opponents. And and uh, he's really kind of my silver bullet. We were discussing this. I said, Mark, what do you think? This was, he leaked this, right? And Mark said, I just don't think, and Mark works on a lot of campaigns beyond just what we work together. He said, just be careful. No one is that smart. Don't give the Trump organization that much credit to time it this perfectly, to hold it this long for this moment. He's like, I just can't believe they're that smart. You might be right. Um, I think that we have one more clip on this issue as it relates to um, Trump's returns. Let's go ahead and roll the clip. So when Melania Trump went for her citizenship interview in 2006, she would have had to bring tax returns, including from this first year when she was married to Donald Trump. And that tax return would be used as a very important piece of evidence as to whether or not she should get citizenship. So you better believe that the 2005 tax return is going to be sterling, right? That it's going to display excellent citizenship and no red flags whatsoever. I don't <laughs> buy it. I really, I just, I, here's, here's where MSNBC loses their shit and loses me in the process. They desperately want there to be conspiracies as it relates to Russia and Trump's involvement and Trump's making money. It's all a backroom deal, but they have no hard evidence. So they try to connect a bunch of dots the same way they attack Sean Hannity for connecting and Mark Levin for connecting dots about wiretapping. It's the same shit. Can I say something here about the tax return? Yeah. Because uh, I love interrupting, which has not been brought up before. And if you notice the tax return, it's stamped client copy. You know who hands that out? The IRS doesn't have that. It's accountants. The, the accountants right. that stamp client right. copy handed to you. So it's the accounting firm. Someone in the accounting Which firm sense. leaked it. And have we heard a word about him firing the accounting people? No. Wouldn't that story have come out where you have, yeah, I'm sure he has Deloitte. I'm sure he has uh, NDAs with them, but still Absolutely. it would leak. It would leak. Yeah. That's plausible in the same way that the New York Times received the tax. Uh, remember, they did that big bombshell that Trump may not have paid any taxes because they got it anonymously mailed. That came from an accountant in Trump Tower. So it's very possible that somebody just got this. But were they trying to sabotage Trump? Because in a way, <laughs> it's completely backfired. Yeah, and I, I don't know the answer, but it came. Yeah, I, it's, it's, a, it's a good theory, and but it's has, probably we, likely. You would have heard, because you know it's a Deloitte Touche or yeah, some one of major organization. And with 2,000 employees, someone would have said, we lost the Trump account. Uh, because uh, if someone releases a tax yeah. return, even if someone releases your tax return. Uh, oh, they're dead. Uh, right. And so the first thing you do is fire your accountant, correct? Mm -hmm. Haven't heard a word about that. And why is it that year in particular? Because it was his best year. 
Well, there you go. And it's the one he pay actually taxes on. Good point. <laughs> so, he, so he did leak it. Is your is your argument? Or he otherwise heads heads would roll. Uh, yeah. I mean, it'd be a very simple yeah. thing. Look back. Who was our accountant? Who's our accounting firm in two thousand five? Who worked on the? Who touched the account? I think it's pretty simple. Yeah, and yeah. the other tax returns are going to be beautiful. And that that uh, that hundred and fifty million dollars. That's that was his reported income. That was his after all the deductions were taken. Yes. It was a two hundred and fifty million dollars. Well, because because he sold these two giant buildings, right. it was a great year for him. And he had all he had tax losses going that's forward right. on that. Right, which is what the New York Times wrote about before. Okay, I'm done. Go ahead. Yeah, well, that's a good point. It's also interesting to note that by Maddow jumping the shark here, um, and I think it's been fairly well litigated in the news about uh, this was a big, they say, a nothing burger. um, And she did, Maddow did this big lead up. They have his returns, they have his returns, and it turns out there was no there there. Uh, The important thing here is uh, about the percentage not the amount that Trump pays in taxes. And that if you go back and you look at things that Bernie Sanders said and tweeted and Hillary Clinton said during the debates, accusing Donald Trump of paying not just low taxes, zero taxes, saying he's a fraud, he's a tax cheat. Bernie Sanders saying, you know, Donald Trump is going to lose in November. And at that point, he's going to be forced to pay his fair share in taxes. And then whoops, Turns out that Bernie Sanders pays a 13% rate and Donald Trump paid a 25% rate. The thing here is there was, I, I've been watching the news. There was not one apology from any of those liberals saying, I'm sorry, Mr. Trump, you're a good citizen. You paid your fair share. I take it back. And that kind of galls me. You know, it's fine to go to your partisan corners 99% of the time, but when you are dead wrong, you, you you will gain more credibility with the viewing public if you say, I'm sorry, you're right, I was wrong, and I'm glad I was wrong. Right? But you'll never see that. Frustrating. Go ahead. Wiretapping now. We're still on the wiretapping claims, and Trump's press secretary, Sean Spicer, um, is claiming to have walked back on the president's wiretapping allegations. He said... Trump doesn't really think that President Obama went and tapped his phone personally. And they're claiming that wiretapping spans several forms of surveillance. So it's Can we roll, can we roll the track. clip on this one? I think we've got something. I think if you look at the president's tweet, he said very clearly, quote, wiretapping. In quotes, uh, there's been substantial uh, discussion in several reports. Uh, the the Brett Baer from Fox, from John's, uh, on March 3rd, talked about evidence of wiretapping. There's been reports in the New York Times and the BBC and other outlets about other aspects of surveillance that have occurred. Uh, the president was very clear in his tweet that it was, you know, wiretapping. Um, that that spans a whole host of surveillance types of, of options. The House and the Senate Intelligence Committees uh, will now look into that and, and provide a report back. But I think that there has been numerous reports um, from a variety of outlets over the last couple months that seem to indicate that there has been um, different types of surveillance that occurred during the 2016 election. So you're hearing the White House, as producer Jenny Lee said, they're walking it back. Uh, look, I hate to say I'm right, but last week on this show, this is exactly what I said would happen, that Trump talks in, he all means 
general, like when he accuses Ted Cruz of being Lion Ted, does that mean that we are to believe that he means we're to believe that Ted always lies 100% of the time? No, it just means he used that tool for dramatic effect, but it means that Ted lies some of the time. Just like did Obama, the Obama administration, someone within that administration was tapping Trump or his associates or someone close to that. I was on CNN. I had this to say about the issue. And John, I was going to ask you about, you know, they're out there, at least these two pages, and for the White House, a happy moment, because it vindicates that they pay taxes. Dylan was talking about it not moving the needle on the story, but how does the White House take the ball and run now? Well, there's a couple things. First of all, the silence is deafening from Hillary Clinton, who accused Donald Trump of not paying any federal taxes in the September debate, a presidential debate. So I'm waiting to see that apology. But I think what... It, what <laughs> she's probably waiting for a few apologies. From Trump for <laughs> she's not on the back. Putting that out there. Uh, she's not in jail right now. So, uh, <laughs> uh, oh, someone's feeling good tonight. <laughs> uh, no, but reality is the, the Trump administration likes to play play the victim when it comes to the media overreaching and this was a giant softball handed right to them that they're going to run with and rightfully so for some time because the reality is not only did Trump pay taxes that's not the story the story is the margin at which he paid he paid a higher margin than than Barack Obama a higher margin than uh, than um, Bernie Sanders, Senator, yeah, Senator Sanders, yeah. Ex exactly. So I think that's the thing is that he wasn't using loopholes to skirt the system. He played fair and square. But doesn't it? Well, that was the wrong clip. <laughs> it's all right. Uh, that actually, I'm glad we played it. It was addressing the tax returns. Um, but this is the point about the wiretaps. He was speaking generally. Now, even though he was speaking generally, if there is no there, there, and I don't mean about Obama authorizing a, a specific tap. I mean, if they can't point to real facts showing that the NSA was delivering intelligence reports to the White House that might have had Trump listed in it on a regular basis, something to that degree, Trump is screwed. He's screwed on this issue. Um, and it just, I don't think it's, it's not going to kill him politically. But what it undermines is, even with Republicans, is that there's going to be a point during his administration where Trump is going to come to us in a, in a national press conference or a statement from the Oval Office, and he's going to say, I just received intelligence from the FBI or the CIA or the NSA that says we have to deploy troops, we have to cut aid, we have to do something. I can't release this information to you because it's classified, but you have to trust me that I'm right and we need to do this. He won't have Americans trust because he keeps undermining it with things like this. Well, Jenny Lee, you did a pretty good job at the news. Oh, thank you. Very nice well time. done. <laughs> Very well done. Bill, what would you say? Uh, should, we, I, should we keep her? Yeah, I would start with you probably have the loudest flushing toilet of... Uh, <laughs> In what? any place I've ever been to in my life. I like it extra loud. Uh, you got it. Uh, yes. And it was a great idea to have Jenny do the, the news. Uh, it sounds it good. Sounds elegant. Sounds very BBC-ish. Yeah. Which... You're, you're right. Very BBC-ish. That's right. I do like the BBC. Uh, yes. I don't really, but I'm more like Sky News. You're more yeah. Sky News-ish? Uh, yeah, I could do some Sky okay. News. I do love BBC, though. I'm yeah. a 
Whenever, Greta Hart. Oh, whenever, just, whenever you're interested in uh, talking about the, the plight of the Palestinians and how every Jew should be wiped out in Israel, you just listen. <laughs> just tune yeah, in the BBC. Yeah, 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 that's true. If Trump had his way, the BBC would be abolished. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Government-funded news. There you go. Um, fake news, actually. Uh, all right. We've got Tom Nichols as our guest. Let's, uh, we interviewed him right before the show. So let's go ahead and roll the interview. Joining us is Tom Nichols, who has just written a book entitled The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. And Tom's an interesting guy for a lot of reasons. First, he's a professional of national security affairs at the, the U.S. Naval War College. Uh, he's an adjunct professor at the Harvard Extension School. Um, he's written a bunch of different books on war and whatnot. Uh, we're going to talk about his current book called The Death of Expertise. But most interestingly uh, is that he is a five-time undefeated Jeopardy champion uh, and is one of the all-time top players of the game. Um, just an all-around impressive person. Tom Nichols, are, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Thanks so much for joining us, Tom, on The Thomas Guide. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So you've got this book out entitled The Death of Expertise. Can you tell us a little bit about the premise? Sure. I I wrote uh, the book primarily out of a frustration about the way people were, uh, at least in the kind of late 20th, early 21st century, starting to argue with experts, not as skeptics, not as people asking experts to defend their opinion or to get a second opinion from other experts, but by replacing experts, by, by people saying that I'm as smart as you are on this subject and I reject your conclusions. And you see it happening in a lot of different places, whether it's you know, vaccines or diplomacy or economics or whatever the subject is. And this started to build up kind of in my mind over the years, and I decided to write a book about why this is happening and why I think it's such a bad idea. It seems, uh, it seems to me that this is a very controversial subject uh, because when, you know, we, we cover politics on this show mostly and uh, oftentimes um, Democrats in particular will make the argument, uh, uh, I'll use global warming as an example. Um, it is a, we know better because we have science on our side. Um, and and they'll, it, it, Democrats tend to rely upon experts knowing better than the common man. Does your book address that at all of kind of the, the common sense, common man approach versus society run by experts and a reliance on experts? Well, I, I, I like to think I'm bipartisan about this because I'm mostly on the side of the experts mm-hmm. rather than any one p- political party on this. And I think it's important to point out that Liberals and and conservatives both reject science when it's in their partisan interest to do so. Uh, More anti-vaxxers, more of the anti-GMO folks, for example, are liberal. Uh, More of the climate change uh, denying folks, the people who don't want to talk about that subject at all tend to be conservative. But the fact of the matter is they're all infected with the same problem, which is bias and confirmation bias, which is pretty much the strongest Mm -hmm. drug there is, really. but it, it does, I think, it is more common among Democrats than Republicans to say science is on my side on this. How do you, how do you, uh, or that what, issue, what, but, what, what which is, is infuriating, but I, yeah. it's something both sides tend to do to each other. What, what, what is the solution here? Because uh, you're right, both sides cherry pick studies and facts and so called experts 
uh, that to, to suit their cause. And it makes it very hard for the layman to sort out right from wrong, um, to, to figure out what the truth is. And even in fairness, that news outlets, depending upon their political bents, tend to use certain uh, experts over others. How, how, how does one sort that out? You know, you've hit on a really important problem because people do deploy experts like chess pieces. Uh, and what they don't understand, I think what lay people don't understand is that experts do have disagreements with each other. They do con- uh, contradict each other, but they do so in general according to very specific rules. That we t- Experts tend to fight with each other according to very clear rules of evidence among ourselves, what constitutes a fact, what constitutes a legitimate challenge to it, and so on. And I think one way for people to, I think one place the public would do better is to start by having more foundational knowledge, because what they're trying to do is to jump into the middle of expert debates without having even really some very basic knowledge. They want to be able to talk about uh, vaccines or diet or health but without even a basic understanding of human biology. Or they want to talk about foreign policy, but they can't find most countries on a map. Or they want to talk about the budget, and they have no idea how much the United States spends on anything. Um, So I think people can be much more empowered and be much more effective participants in these debates if they start with a little bit more humility and a little more willingness to, to read some basic information, including a newspaper, no matter whether you think they're biased or not, Start with a daily newspaper, and I think most people would be a lot better off than trying to plow right into the middle of a highly complicated debate. Ah, it all comes back to education at the end of the day. I mean, I, I consider uh, I'm not a statistician by trade, but I have an ability. I've, you know, I've taken a, a, a bunch of courses in my master's programs uh, as well as undergrad on basic statistics simply so I can look at a study and look for the common flaws uh, or to check you know, if a political poll with the sample is so at least I, I have a a decent starting point to understand and interpret the results. Um, and I, 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 I feel like it's also maybe and I'm curious if you agree with this is it's just multiple sources uh, that, that are not right. uh, of different persuasions. You know, I'm a Republican, but I read The New York Times just like I read The Wall Street Journal. And then I make up my own mind after I've read several sources. And also, you've hit on on several important things here. First of all, I think, you know, even if you disagree with the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post or the New York Times, I think you have to start from the assumption that they're doing their best. Yes, they have spin. Yes, there's a bias. But I think, you know, I'm going to stand up for journalists here and say most of the time they really are trying to tell the story and get it right. And uh, I think if you start with any one of the major daily newspapers, you're probably better off than most Americans. The other problem you've pointed out is that Americans in particular really don't understand numbers. And there's a, a, a mathematician named John Allen Paulos who wrote a book 25 years ago that was part of the uh, inspiration for me writing this book. And it was called Innumeracy, where Paulos just said, look, you know, if, if something is marked up 100 percent and then they give you a 20 percent discount, you're not better off. <laughs> Right. You know, and right. people just don't understand this. And he wrote a whole book on why people don't understand numbers. And I think, you know, as you just pointed out, that's at the heart of a lot of these problems. But I would say they don't understand the Constitution. They don't understand right. basic geography. They don't understand basic science. And all of those things are crippling when you're trying to determine where you stand in an argument among experts. 
So what's what's the silver bullet to to let's assume you know we can't overhaul the education system in one day. We can't bring back uh, civics courses uh, and literacy courses. Are we doomed? Is public opinion doomed because we're so gullible? Or, you know, we're a 45-45 split nation, uh, and there, you know, very few are truly actually undecided. We're all just going to our own silos uh, for to, to confirm what, you know, like a confirmation bias situation. Is there any fix, or are we just marching toward our death here on this one? Well, I'm trying to be an optimist about this, but I, and I keep failing. Yeah. Um, the, the problem is people tend to come back to respecting expert advice when they need to, when something terrible happens. Uh, if you want to see the whole vaccine nonsense come to an end tomorrow, that would happen after a pandemic, mm-hmm. for example. Uh, you know, if there is an outbreak tomorrow of, you know, smallpox or polio or whatever, God forbid, whatever disease is out there, um, these kind of affluent, loose debates about vaccines will go right out the window. That's the kind of thing. That's the kind of argument people only have when they're healthy. Right. And I think the same thing would happen in foreign affairs or economics. You know, people who have argued that, well, experts created this terrible economy. I've lived through worse economies than we've seen in the past 10 years. People haven't really seen a bad economy. And when the economy does crash, the first people that that the public turns to, excuse me, tend to be, you know, experts who are, are the people who kind of can figure out things like interest rates and digging out of these, you know, industrial holes that, that we dig ourselves into. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that it doesn't take that, but I'm worried that it's going to take some kind of terrible event before people kind of, before this fever, this populist fever kind of breaks and we, we sort of go back to being the kind of, society that respected the fact that we were able to put a man on the moon and build a supersonic transport and, you know, do all the things we've done. Yeah, I think you you bring up something fascinating, Tom, that uh, I think it explains why populism is so intoxicating these days across the world, uh, because it's more of a gut reaction uh, than it is an informed one, right? Um, it, it doesn't yeah. necessarily weigh the economic impact either direction of a TPP, for instance, other than people are feeling they're getting screwed and they don't like the, the plan. Right. And, uh, and, and let's add that their that their definition of being screwed is pretty is pretty expansive right. uh, that that, you know, the sense of relative deprivation, you know, the experts have really screwed me over because. You know, I have a 46-inch television. It, you know, it's pretty hard to deal with. Now, there are people in places like, you know, Kentucky and West Virginia who are mad at the experts because coal is going to come to an end, and there's just no way around that. Uh, and I think that's a good point to, place to point out. I don't speak right. for the government. That's my personal opinion. But that eventually, you know, if you live near a coal mine and the coal mine closes, you're going to be mad about that, and there's nothing that can be done, and you're going to want to blame somebody. Yeah, uh, it, but I think for a lot of people who are who are mad at experts, they're living in a pretty high standard of living, and I think that, that they're kind of not aware of that. There's even a theory out there that this level of a standard of living actually breeds resentment against experts because everything seems so easy, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I'm kind of undecided on that theory myself, but I think, you know, as I point out in the book, Richard Hofstetter pointed out. 60 years ago that people kind of 
have a resentment against, against experts because their lives are so surrounded by technology and other things that they have a sneaking suspicion of how dependent they are on experts and hmm. rankles them. And maybe that's what we're going yeah, through as well. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I, I wonder if it is a, a degree of, uh, I, no matter how sophisticated this, the, or, or how complicated the topic, I, with my phone or my laptop, through Google, can get an answer that fast. And I think whether, you know, and I think that things that are very complex or, uh, uh, you know, a do-it-yourself project that I might have initially 50 years ago had to have relied upon an expert to help me do my crown moldings in my house. I don't need to do that Mm -hmm. anymore. I can figure it out myself, even though I have no training. I figure, like, I I can figure it out. It's not that complicated. I don't need an expert to tell me what I need to do. I, I wonder if that's maybe a cultural shift. Well, I've done the same thing. I mean, I'm a for although I may sound like a luddite, I actually <laughs> love computers and technology, and I, you know, kind of swapped out my own components and you know upgraded my memory and pulled out my video cards and done all that stuff. And, and I think the the underlying point here is it's kind of like thinking that because I was able to replace my my video card that I therefore know how to design one, <laughs> right. you know, <laughs> yeah. saying, you know, because I know how to put gas in a car, therefore I can make gasoline. Right. Uh, and I think I, people fall into that too easily well, in part because we've become very narcissistic. We yeah. really want to believe that we are all the smartest kid in class and we're just not. Right. I, although I, I, I think Tom, for me at least, it is frustrating. Whenever somebody on TV or somebody in a, in a in a personal conversation says opens up by going, "Oh, it's complicated," you know, I think to myself, yeah. "Okay, fine, but don't demean me, don't belittle me by telling me basically I couldn't understand because it's complicated." You know, take the time to explain well, one, it to me if you're an expert. One place I do criticize experts in the book is that uh, because people have a tendency to lash out at experts. Experts are abandoning their responsibility to society, which is to be patient and explain things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think experts have gotten too used to talking to each other, to using jargon, to using imp- – I mean, mo- let's face it. Most professional and academic writing is impenetrable and right. awful. It is. Uh, I mean, you know, when I'm – I review books as part of my professional obligation. And now and then I get a book in political science where I think, you know, what – what humanity hating computer program wrote this prose? You know, uh, <laughs> right. because exactly. it's literally meant to only communicate to other experts rather than to an ordinary human being with an interest in the subject. Right. So, so there's no doubt about it. It's a two-way street here. Can, yeah, yeah. Pardon, it's a pardon? two-way street, is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, experts sure. can come across as condescending and dismissive. And I know I'm guilty of it. I do it all the time. I am, I am not without sin here, but I will just say in defense of the experts that when you do try to explain something complicated and people start lashing out at you, it's very easy to just step back and say, you know what? Fine. This is just too difficult. We'll Mm -hmm. just handle it. And I'm not going to have this argument with you. Well, uh, Tom, you bring up a lot of uh, interesting things. I can't wait to read your book and I encourage all of our listeners and viewers to do the same. Uh, the death of expertise is what it's called. Uh, Tom Nichols, how do we find you on the on the interwebs or uh, or or whatnot? I am at Radio Free Tom uh, on Twitter. Great. At Radio Free Tom, one word. 
uh, or you can contact me by email at the death of expertise at gmail.com. Thanks so much, Tom Nichols, for joining us. And uh, we hope to have you back again soon. Thank you for having me. Thanks. So you've been commenting, and thank you very much for that, on Facebook. By the way, just in case you've forgotten because you can't see him, KFI's very own Bill Handel is here. Bill, thank you again for joining us. It's uh, my pleasure. It's been fun. You've been so quiet. I have. I've actually, Jenny Lee and I, producer Jenny Lee and I were kicking around like, what's this show going to look like? What's it going to feel like? And we're both thinking, well, it's probably going to go completely off the rails yeah, and because I, I Handel's going to be screaming from the bathroom. Yeah, absolutely. I fully intended on stopping it cold, saying, okay, stop it. Let's take it from the top. That sucked. <laughs> I fully intended on doing that, but uh, well, you know, I can't manufacture that sort well, of stuff. I was kind of hoping at some point you were going to throw down the headphone and just say, I'm out. This is shit. I can't do anything with it. Well, I did go to the bathroom and peed. Does and, that count? And we all heard it. Yes. With the- <laughs> Speaking of that, I think we had a couple of people talk. Uh, Jenny Lee, what were people saying? Well, maybe this could be the reason you're always going to the bathroom. So, Corey Brockman, he always sounds like he is returning from cramming his gullet with Diet Coke. Yeah, and you know why I sound that way? <laughs> Because I'm always cramming my gullet <laughs> with Diet it's Coke. It's true. Uh, so Handel <laughs> and I went to lunch uh, so a week or so ago with Marjorie. And we're, we're at uh, a restaurant called Public School. And they come out. You know, everybody gets water, except for Handel, gets Diet Coke. They come out and they bring these tiny little <laughs> glass bottles. I mean, they're like, you know, yay big, right? Am I right? About yeah. yay big. And she pours it. And Handel goes, the shit is this? And, she, and the waitress is like, it's a Diet Coke. He goes, seriously? How much was this sip of Diet Coke? And I think it was like two fifty yeah. for a sip. Bill, you went through four or five oh, yeah. of those. Now, in your defense, they were just small. They were just barely to wetting your palate. Yeah, it was uh, when I first uh, met Marjorie and I would sit, and those were the days before they did the refillable constantly, Yeah, is I would order six glasses of Diet Coke with one glass full of ice. And Marjorie was stunned, just stunned. <laughs> but then there's a lot of that over the last yeah. many years. Why is there an inverse relationship to price and portion size? Why? why? If That's they, true. I mean, not to say. Why is, if you think about it, it encourages you to get more and more and more. You yeah, think, but, oh, yeah, why but, not? You know, I just spend to, you... a tiny bit more and I'm going to get the largest size. Well, but, but let's say they don't. A restaurant doesn't have a size. They come out with a plate, and it's like, you know, it's very beautifully laid out, and it's a piece of salmon that's three ounces. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure it's a good three ounces, but is it, you know, $60 worth? I don't know. That kind of burns me. If I'm going to pay a, a premium, give me some extra portions. I don't ever want to leave my dinner and still be hungry. Bill, I think we're off topic. Probably. I, if, if if we were at KFI, the phone would be ringing, and it would be Robin. Right. Uh, I love the, how but, outraged you get by things like this, John. Like... The wrapper on your cookie just before the show. Oh, well, uh, okay, first of all, can you see this? (laughs) This is paper in my cookie. And by the way, a premium cookie. It was like a four or five dollar cookie. And you took a picture of it, everybody. I I did. (laughs) I'm calling uh, you out now. (laughs) Yeah, I I looked at it. I was like, look at this. There's paper in my cookie. And uh, and then I think it was you, Jenny, that says, well, can you still eat it? I said, oh, yeah, I'm still eating it. But I'm going to take a picture. Then I'm going to go to the coffee place and get a free cookie. The outreach. Anyway. Okay. All right. Jojo Uh, wants to know if he can see everybody. Bill? No. 
All right. There's a reason they say Bill has a face for radio. That's absolutely true. So we'll just keep me on camera for now. And then also, I thought we'd, we'd shout out Natasha. She's um, <laughs> Natasha Johnson, a loyal listener. Yes. She Hello. We're great. So oh. there you go. And she watches uh, every week. We Na- see her. So Natasha, we have a surprise for you. So hang on for just a few minutes. But let's uh, let's get it in the next segment, Jenny. Okay. So let's look at the next story. So cart workers are storming Miami. Do we have the video for this? Wait, wait, hold on. Not cart workers, car twerkers. <laughs> twerkers. Twerk, twerkers. This is a great video, everybody. Watch this. That's impressive. She was full on humping that sunroof. Yeah. And where is this? Miami? Miami, yeah. Let's book a trip. Wow. <laughs> well, uh, twerking has been done for years. It's it's what they do at strip clubs. I mean, it's it's how they, you know, make it clap, right? Make it rain, make it clap. Uh, Bill's looking dumbfounded. Bill, does Marjorie <laughs> does Marjorie ever twerk? Oh God, yeah. Yeah, she's the twerking queen. <laughs> I don't, matter of fact, I, she twerked at our wedding. It was fantastic. Bill's wife, Marjorie, <laughs> is so nice, but she's like, you know, she broke her hip. I don't think anyone's twerking for at least a no. couple months. <laughs> All right, next. So this goes to something slightly more serious. Hmm. Google Ads tool, they're going to introduce a new tool that will flag offensive search results. Is this something that we need, John? Okay, this really pissed me off. This is this is liberalism at its best. They are basically allowing any day users to flag search results that as offensive, uh, which would then separate them and ostensibly lower them in the search index. I don't know about you, but I think 98% of the internet could be ranked as offensive. And that's why I love it. I love that... I'm going to get the unvarnished version of it. And in our politically correct society, someone is offended by everything. And if we give everyday folks the ability to flag things as offensive, that's just going to dumb down the internet, make the internet a politically correct haven. And that would be terrible for freedom of information. I think it's just, it's awful. It's Google's attempt to combat fake news, offensive news. But your definition of offensive and mine might be completely different. Yep. You know, double anal, for instance. Offensive to you. That's my line, John. Yeah. None of that on this show. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, uh, I'm offended uh, to see Google going in this direction. I hope they get pushback from consumers because I think it's absolute bullshit. All right. So last week we teased. We did. John, you've got a new pop on the way. Well, she's coming. Yep. And we said that we were going to reveal the origin of her name, Peaches. So why don't you let us know? Sure. So there is Peaches. Uh, Peaches is a greater Swiss mountain dog. Uh, She, which, okay, everybody's like, what the fuck is a greater Swiss mountain dog? It is half Bernese 
Uh, it's well, it's a shorter haired version of Bernese. Now, Bernese, if you've seen them, they have long fur. Uh, they are half Rottweiler and half Mastiff. Um, they're a big dog. Okay. The greater Swiss peaches will be anywhere from 100 to 130 pounds, and she's a female. The males are about 150 pounds. She Right now, she's about 10 pounds. So she's coming from Iowa uh, next week, right after the show, and uh, she's being shipped on an airplane to me. It took me over a year, Jenny, to find this dog. Do you know there are only 300 Greater Swiss Mountain Dogs born in the United States a year? 300. So it's, it's and it's it was this labyrinth thing. If I wanted a Frenchie, I'd get a Frenchie tomorrow. Everybody's got Frenchies. How much was it? <laughs> I'm, I'm avoiding that question. <laughs> what did you pay for that stupid uh, dog? All in 2,500 bucks. No. Which wasn't bad. No, that's Do you know how bad. much Frenchies are going for? Eight grand. Eight yeah. grand for a Frenchie. Sometimes more if they're that blue Frenchie, the gray Frenchie, which, by the way, the more inbred it is, the more fucked up it's going to be. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Bill, I understand you have some experience with very expensive dogs. I have a $13,000 dog. Had. 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 Yeah. yeah it's, been, it's been adopted out. Yeah. and it, <laughs> They got rid of this dog after they spent 13000 And the funniest yeah. thing, I was at your house. You still have a portrait of the dog. Oh, yeah. On your bookshelf. Right. Gra- in graduation garb. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the the yeah the cap and tassel business yeah because yeah. the dog was only twenty five hundred dollars like your dog okay but then it was three thousand dollars for uh, doggy school to train the dog then because we live in the hills we had to in the dog run we had to cover the whole thing up because the coyotes were a little tiny white little dog it looked like uh you know it looked like a, a gay guy's uh, uh slipper you know floor <laughs> slipper you know the big white sure, puffy thing that all the, all the gay guys uh, yeah. use. And uh, it was, so I had to cover up this entire thing, build this dog run, and uh, put a, a top on it. And, we, and that's so the coyotes wouldn't eat it. That's correct. And then the door to get out of uh, the house into the dog run is a door that was all glass, and you can't put a doggy door in a glass door. So what we had to do is take the door back to the manufacturer, the pellet door, had to remanufacture the door to make it the bottom third wood and then put in the doggy door. 13 grand. Oh and how long did you have the Nine dog? months. <laughs> nine months? Yep, nine months. And then months. at that point you realized, I don't like the dog? No, no, we love the dog. <laughs> Problem is, it's a, a dog that loves people. It has to be around people. It's called a Catan de Toulier. It's a French dog that actually came out of Madagascar. That mm. is, it's a, it's a lap dog, and it has to be around people. And we were gone all day. And so Marjorie ended up sitting there at home petting the dog. That was it. Oh, that's exactly what it was like. So oh we God. had we had friends that were retired, and they just took the okay. dog. And uh, so there's my – how much is that per month? Nine months into yeah. 13000 Yeah, $800 a well, month. Well, you know, growing up, we had a Rottweiler we adopted and a Red Doberman we adopted. Be- beautiful show-quality Doby. They fought like no other. And my parents – the Rottweiler was mine. The Doberman was my sister's. My parents decided um, that it was an aggressive. Oh, excuse me. No, I take it back. The uh, we had a dog, another rescue. It was a little bit violent. Had to get rid of it. My parents told my sister that she went out. They gave her to someone on a farm, and she's happy and she's running. There was no someone on a farm. The dog was put down. Fast forward twenty-two <laughs> years to like last year. And we were at a barbecue at my family's place. 
And my mom was joking, going, remember that time? Maybe we'll take, you know, your new dog, John, to the farm. And my sister, who's, you know, in her 30s, says, to the farm? Why would you send her to a farm? My mom laughs, and she's like, come on, Kelly. You know, you, to the farm. And she's like, no. And then we explained to her, my grown-ass sister starts bawling, <laughs> going, Ginger! <laughs> Anyway, is that what you did? You sent it to the farm? No. Wait, yeah. what was your dog called? What was that dog called? That ginger? was Ginger. So was ours. Really? Ours was Ginger, yeah. Ginger to the farm. No, just Ginger. Last name Handle, <laughs> not to the farm. Ginger Handle. Ginger Handle. Uh, oh, and it wasn't $800 a month. It was. Oh, you're right. More than that. $1,440. Jesus. We rented the dog. $1,400 a month. <laughs> a it, was either, it was either that or a one-bedroom apartment. <laughs> it's a pricey fur ball. Yeah. Uh, so, so real quickly, because we're we're running out of time here, the way the name Peaches came to be was during the campaign, the presidential campaign, uh, a couple months out, it was looking like Donald Trump might lose, and I was so depressed that Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president of the United States that I was like, well, we need to impeach her, and then I was like, oh, I'll get a dog, I'll name her Peaches, short for impeachment. And it will remind me every day that we need to remove Hillary Clinton from office. And the name just kind of stuck. So there you go. Uh, and by the way, we have just, can we show just a couple seconds of Peaches with her litter? Come here. Boy, Trigger. Peaches. There you go. Peaches with Trigger. And Bon Bon and Coco. <laughs> I think and there were I six. I have a hamster called Fang. You do. Yeah. You do. I bet Fang <laughs> so could don't ride want any peaches. Of these silly names. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Well, actually, you have multiple hamsters, don't you? We do. <laughs> and these aren't the kind of gerbils you can do things with. Bill. No, they're not. I'm not going to say hamsters yeah. up the ass. They're, <laughs> not, yeah. they're, not, they're not Richard Gere gerbils. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Richard Gere no, gerbils. No, no, no. 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 Um, all right. The last segment here is from our listener, Natasha, who does some really cool work with this nonprofit called uh, Makeovers Matter, which helps vets often who are homeless with their sense of being. Let's go ahead and roll the promo clip. My name is Michael John Derricott. I am the CEO and founder of Makeovers That Matter. Makeovers That Matter is an organization that's really devoted to the empowerment of women. We focus and specialize and cater to women who have served our nation, whether they be veterans from the military or military spouses that have cared for our military personnel. Today here at one of LA's premier hair salons, the Kim Kimball Salon, we are providing eight beautiful black women warriors with a complete day of pampering. Being a homeless veteran, I haven't really had a chance to pamper myself in this way. So to be able to come into a well-known studio and have celebrity artists pamper to me, cater to me, and talk to me, that was pretty cool. The staff was very pleasant, and they were upbeat and beautiful, and they helped me feel beautiful. I had no idea what I was in store for. Getting my nails done, my hair, just makeup, absolutely a wonderful time. For someone to give back and take notice of me was really uh, special. 
having this experience has reminded me how to put myself back together and just present a better image of myself to the world. Cool stuff. I like how there was a snippet there where they were getting crunk with Jack <laughs> Daniels. Well, I guess that's their sponsor. But uh, but seriously, very neat. Makeovers that matter. Congratulations, Natasha. Uh, you know, honestly, as a side note, I think we as a society should be doing anything we can, not just to help vets, but to utilize veterans when they come back, whether that's, um, you know, veterans training people how to use firearms. Uh, um, there should be, you know, tax incentives for hiring veterans in everyday businesses. I just, I feel like here, certainly in LA where I'm based, there are incentives for hiring ex-cons. Why the hell are we not having incentives for hiring veterans? Uh, so kudos to Natasha. Keep up the great work. And thank you so much for submitting that. Great. Wow. Bill, we made it. You did? I thought you were asleep. At the end. Yeah, <laughs> no, I looked over <laughs> Billy. No, nope. nope. I was closing my eyes and processing. Uh, all. Yeah, just close, just resting his eyes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, that's that's been, what do you think? Not bad, huh? Not bad. Not bad. It was actually pretty good. We made it. You did make it. Well, thank you for being here. You know, Bill, if this was your this is your tryout, you're welcome here anytime. Oh yeah, that'll be happening. Yeah, that'll <laughs> Bill's happen. like that'll happen never. Yeah, I'm no? never coming back to this shit. I'll come back and visit. It's fun. All right, yeah. well, you're welcome anytime. Thank you. You're welcome anytime over here. Nice thing about this is there's no phone to get a call from Robin. Yeah, that's Robin's, true. Robin's program director at KFI who calls me constantly. Yeah, she can't yell at us from here. Nope, she'll true. yell us after. That's but not during. So, thank you, producer Jenny. Thank you, engineer Roy. Thanks, guys. It's been another episode of The Thomas Guide. We will see you next week on Thursday at 1. But, of course, you can share this with any of your friends at any time at theteaguide.com. Have a great weekend. This has been The Thomas Guide with John Thomas. We hope you've enjoyed the ride. Join us Thursdays at 1 on Facebook Live. Tweet John at The Thomas Guide. Find us on iTunes and subscribe. Or you can go to KFI. Keyword, The Thomas Guide.